Good afternoon. The panel on RNZ National. Nice to be with you. I'm Wallace Chapman, Nikki Bazant and Chris Wikaira with me this afternoon. And police have announced a plan to revise their policy on chasing fleeing drivers. Police Commissioner Andrew Costa said changes introduced a couple of years ago had seen an increase in drivers, fleeing events and decrease in the number of offenders identified. The revisions will bring us back to a more balanced position, he said. Offenders have realised that police weren't chasing, so there has been a change in behaviour. So just wanted to get an explainer and understanding of motivations here. There was a report, uh, as I mentioned, put out in 2020 of uh, understanding the motivations of fleeing drivers. It was made possible with funding from the New Zealand police. And one of the authors was Dr. Jacinta Cording, a lecturer in psychology at the University of Canterbury. Uh, Dr. Cording, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace. So, yeah, this fleeing driver framework is to be released next year, so there's not a whole lot of details yet. But firstly, tell us what's the average demographic of fleeing drivers, if you like. Yeah, so from what we understand from a report put out by the Evidence-Based Policing Centre and the IPCA, it looks like the average driver is about 20 to 24 years old. Um, So that younger adult, but not the teenagers that people might think. And, and what's, typically male. Typically male. And what's yeah. the biggest motivators? So what we found was that, um, well, what we found in our sample in New Zealand corresponds with what's found internationally, which is that there's this general willingness to flee, I guess. So people see it as something that might happen, they're willing to do so, and then it's typically triggered by something. And in our case, it was triggered by some sort of illegal behaviour that people are involved in, whether that be carrying drugs or guns or maybe they're on a restricted licence, for instance, and carrying passengers. So there's that in-the-moment trigger that causes people to flee. Uh, uh, and less so because some of these uh, so-named RAM raids, a lot of it was perhaps in, uh, in, in collaboration or in cooperation, I guess, with um, social media, uh, if you like, you know, sort of wanting to sort of document and putting it up on whether it be TikTok or Instagram, less so for fleeing drivers. Yeah, so what we found, we did explore the social media angle in particular, and what we found was that young people in particular did enjoy going out stealing cars, going for joy rides, as they might call it. It wasn't necessarily to get in a chase, but they were aware that a police chase might eventuate from stealing cars. And if they got into those police chases, then they did want to document that for social media, for showing videos to their friends, that sort of thing. But it wasn't a motivation per se to go out and seek pursuits. In the most case, absolutely, yeah. we did speak to some people who did seek out those chases. We'll bring our panellists uh, shortly, uh, Jacinda. But in terms of, you mentioned international research, how much um, research is there around um, you know, police pursuits internationally? And, and is, it, is it a subject that uh, you know, is of concern in other countries? So there's actually not much. Uh, it is a concern to other countries. There are police agencies internationally who are... T- tackling with exactly how to address this complex problem. But there isn't that much primary research out there on this, so we were only aware Mm. of a handful of other previous studies. Wow. Nikki? 
Yeah, I wonder, and Jacinta, you may not have the answer to this, but I wonder, because I thought that the reason why they changed their policy two years ago was to stop people being killed in pursuit, uh, yeah. right? And I'm just wondering if that has happened, if we have had fewer fatal crashes in police pursuits now that they've, or since it's stopped, since it's changed. Did it have that That's effect? a really good question. I don't know the answer to that. I do know that it happened in a minority of cases, but obviously those cases are incredibly harmful. And so that was my understanding about reducing some of those chases too, particularly for young people. Young people, um, teenagers, aren't the most prominent people who flee from police, but they are the people who are involved in some of these fatal crashes more often. So they're more impacted by the pursuit. Chris Bukaira. And on, on that note, that's you're talking to um, police today and some of my sources. Um, the big balance is between risk to public and being able to, to do their job. Um, there's certainly a feeling amongst a lot of police officers that they feel a little constrained and at times can't um, do their job properly. By, by the policy. However, there's always that risk to the public element. And the key point seems to be intel, intelligence. What do they know about the person if they can identify the person and know that it's someone who is a recidivist offender, someone who is, you know, then, then there is probably more justification in continuing a pursuit and making sure they're stopped because they're more likely to go on and harm somebody else. But that point about young people is not pursuing um, teenagers because they can't drive properly and they make dumbass decisions and and that and that's why they tend to disproportionately kill themselves. No. Jacinda? Oh, you know, I think that's right. I think you know, sometimes it can be hard for the officers in the moment to know exactly who is in the car and how old they are, which is why some of those more blanket approaches to pursuits can help protect uh, younger people. But absolutely, I think if we can avoid the chases in the first place, that just keeps everyone safer. Are there any deterrence? Uh, so what we know from the literature is that, or and from our research, is that people just tend to panic, really. So it's a really emotive response. It's not a rational right. response a lot of the time. So it really is about trying to prevent those crimes from happening in the first place, and then people don't have a reason to flee, right? So that really is a big focus. Certainly an issue that the police are grappling with, eh, Nikki? Yeah, it must be really hard, and I can't imagine... Getting that balance right, huh? Yeah, and it is one of those things... Um, it's like that Malcolm Gladwell blink theory, too. You've got to make these decisions in such a short split second of time. It must be really, really difficult. That was one thing that was shared home to us, um, Dr Cording, a couple of years back when, uh, you know, it, it was very prominent in the news. Um, <laughs> a, 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 a policeman was on the show just saying, you know... These decisions are really fast, super fast, and um, you know it's 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 actually a tricky thing to actually get right. Oh, oh very. Yeah, absolutely. And and a lot of police officers feel like they're damned if they do, damned if they don't. Mm. What about um, differences between big cities and the regions? Uh, yeah, so what we found was not that there was a difference per se, but that people were more willing to flee if they were in an area that they were familiar with. So it made them more confident that they knew the roads, that they thought of little shortcuts they could take to get away. Um, that was the pattern that we found. All right. Well, thanks for explaining. I think that's uh, Dr. Jacinda Cording, a lecturer in psychology at 
the University of Canterbury, part of a report uh, put out in 2020, um, trying to understand the motivations of uh, fleeing drivers. So uh, interesting, eh, Chris, uh, that, uh, the fact that uh, it's actually uh, highly impulsive. Um, you, um, you're involved in some sort of criminal event and then just just pump that gas. Oh, very, very much so. And, and again, I think that comes back to what I was told about the intel. If they can identify, if they're able to identify who it is, then you're, much, you're much better able to make decisions about what you're going to do about it. And I was just thinking about you know, many, many years ago, an uncle of mine was in a, a specialist task force in the Australian Federal Police. And you know, one, of the, one of the things that the literal weapons they had in, in their arsenal was um, to... Uh, he, he had a revolver and he had five normal bullets and the, and the sixth one was at times an armour-piercing one and they would have that specifically for shooting through into the radiator and into the blocks of cars to stop engines. Good Whoa. grief. <laughs> good you have grief. to be a good shot, what? wouldn't you? That's, that's really? a, long, a long, long time ago. Whoa. <laughs> I'd be interested if you are in the uh, police force, um, get in touch, text me 2101 if you are listening to this. Uh, Remember that, what, I'm, I'm talking, this was Australia, not New Zealand. Yeah, no, 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 no doubt. Um, but uh, what's your thoughts on this and uh, how do you find it uh, in uh, pursuit of a fleeing driver? 17 past four, you're on the panel, Chris Wukaida and Nikki Bizant with me this afternoon. Donors giving more than $1,500 to political parties should be identified. No individuals should be able to give more than fifteen grand a year, in a year, and only eligible New Zealand voters should be able to donate to political parties. This is what a new report recommends. Researchers Mass, Max Rashbrook and Lisa Marriott released the findings of Money for Something, a report on political party funding at Parliament. Yesterday, the research was paid for through Victoria University funding, so to discuss. We have Max Rashbrook from the Institute for Governance and Policy Studies. Kia ora, Max. Kia ora, Wes. And you also analysed what other countries are doing. How, how do we compare on this? Uh, we're definitely at the weakly regulated end of the spectrum. Um, so in the majority of countries, you'd have to disclose your identity as a donor if you give over $5,000. Um, currently, it's for are you there, Max? No, we'll get him back. We will get Max back. We're talking about uh, donors giving more than $1,500 to political parties, uh, and no individual should be able to give more than $15,000 a year. This is a really significant issue, and actually, Chris Bukata, one that we've been grappling with for a long time, probably even when you were uh, a journalist. Yeah, uh, when I was in the, in the press gallery, it was it was talked about back then, and that was last century. Um, it's something which has always been there or thereabouts, but I think probably in the last couple of decades, it's become much much more prominent. I certainly think we can't uh, it can't hurt to have more transparency mm. on who's giving what to whom. Okay, and, and I think the the key issue there that that Max has been looking at is this this splitting splitting of donations, so that you might have someone who who makes a big donation and they split it into lots of little bits to come under the threshold so that they don't have to declare who they are. 
that's um, if someone's going to that trouble, you kind of think, well, yeah, why are they doing that? And and perhaps it would be good to have a um, a little bit of sunlight on on that. Well, we'll talk about split donations soon. But back to how we do um, internationally. Um, Max Rashbrook says we're we're not so good. But what would the opposite spectrum be, Max? The United States. Yeah, very much. I mean, that that's a country where I think everyone knows that um, money has got pretty out of control in politics. Um, but what, what's interesting is just across the border, you've got Canada and yeah. you've got a really tough system. You know, you can't donate more than $2,000 uh, in a year to a political party if you're in Canada and you have to disclose your identity if you give more than $200. What? More than 200 bucks, you've got to disclose your identity? Yeah, I know. And look, I mean, and I personally think that's too low. I think someone should be able yeah. to give, you know, $50 a month, $100 a month and not have their identity disclosed. But um, what's interesting about the Canadian system is in a given year, uh, even though they've got this really tight cap, uh, they, Canadian political parties take in about $50 million Canadian in donations from 250000 donors, each of whom is only giving a few hundred dollars on average. So it, it creates a system where, you know, instead of chasing a small number of large donations, you've got a large number of people providing small amounts of money, and I think that's a lot healthier. Interesting. Uh, before we get our panel, it's interesting to hear you, Max Rashbrook, even you have um, a limit to transparency. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I just think ordinary people, you know, they're obviously not buying anything special if they're giving a few hundred dollars to a political party and they've got an expectation of privacy. So why not sort of bump it up more than 200 bucks? Because, you know, more than $1,500 and have to disclose who you, who you are. Some might say, listen to this, that that also would have a chilling effect on democracy. It's a valued right, surely, Max, to be able to donate to a party and no one need to know who you are, because that may also have repercussions. Sure, and it's a trade-off, but the reason we went for $1,500 is partly, you know, when you do polling, that's sort of roughly where the public things it should be but also that's the level where people are clearly buying some kind of access you know all those president's club cabinet's club fundraising schemes that the political parties run where you're a business person you pay the money and you get a a little bit of a slot you get to spend some time with a minister those tend to clock in at around fifteen hundred dollars so that seems like a reasonable point for scrutiny mickey bizant yeah, it's interesting. You've alluded to it there, Max. What are people buying? What are they? They're not giving a donation from altruism, generally speaking, are they? It's not out of the goodness of their heart to, so the party can pursue its goals that they believe in. It's for something. It's for access or, for, or it's for influence, right? What, what do you know from your research about what people's expectations and motivations are when they make donations like this? Well, it, it's pretty clear that they're exercise that they're getting access. Um, you know, donors. When we spoke to them anonymously and they were being candid, one of them said, "Well, look, I mean, you know, it makes it easier to get a meeting with a minister." And this was someone who'd given forty, fifty thousand dollars. You know, so there's that expectation. And there was another donor who insisted that he had, you know, had no sort of uh, influence or access or anything. Uh, but when we quizzed him, you know, he'd had prime ministers coming around to his house for dinner. He had another party leader who'd pop in for a chat about life, quote, unquote. Mm. So you're getting amazing levels of access, that's that's for sure. Chris, where does your level of transparency sit? I think the fifteen hundred dollars is, is about right. I mean, I agree with Max that you know those those who are giving a little bit here and there, um, either in a, an election year time because I think that's you know usually where where most people do, or they're doing a little bit to the party that they've always been, you know, 
um, a supporter of, that's, I mean, that's just fine. That's just plain democracy. All right. Uh, did I hear, I think I can recall, I mean, does it ha- affect other parties more than others, Max? I think I can recall David Seymour saying it would advantage Labour and the Greens more. So what we're talking about is that if you limited donations in the way we suggest, we'd also have a Canadian-style system where there's incentives for people to make small donations. Um, you know, So if you give a few hundred dollars, uh, then you get a tax credit back, a bit like donating to charity. And then, in, in, you know, and so under that system, which operates in Canada, their Conservative Party, which is the equivalent of our National Party, they get the equivalent of, you know, four or five million dollars a year in donations. So this is a system that can work well for any party, I think. Okay. What about uh, an appetite for state funding? Because it always comes up, doesn't it, Max? Have you costed that out? Yeah, and look, you know, that kind of system of, of tax credits, of reimbursements, of small donations, I mean, that effect, that is a form of state funding. And, yeah, look, I mean, we think what it would cost, you know, to make up for the fact that parties can't get these big donations anymore would be in the order of 6 to $8 million a year. And so I guess sort of my pitch on that to, to people is to say, well, for, for about $2 a year per voter in New Zealand, we could just sweep those big money donations out of politics altogether. And I think, I think that'd be a price worth paying. Interesting. I'd love to put that out to our listeners this afternoon. Do you think it's a price worth paying a couple of bucks a year, six to eight million dollars a year, state funding for elections? Do away with all this chat because it always comes up every year about um, donations. You've got scandal upon scandal. 2101. Would you support uh, or do you have an appetite for state funding in Aotearoa? Nikki Bazant. Well, in theory, it would make your politicians less corruptible, wouldn't it? Although we or see. Would it? We, well, yeah. Would there be another what's way? The, yeah, what's, would, the, <laughs> what's the fish hooks? Chris? On one side, you know, it, it, it creates at least a perception that everybody's on an equal playing field. But then on the other side, if you've got, you know, the, and we're still dominated largely by two major parties, that if um, small parties have the same amount of access to to, to state airtime, say, or, or, or funding, then they are disproportionately advantaged because of their small size. Max? Um, look, I, I think you, you can have a balance on those things. I mean, under the sort of system we're talking about, I think it'd be quite healthy because I think the bigger parties would get more funding. But look, I mean, they've got more voters and that's reason and they're more likely to be in government but you can weight the system so that it favors smaller parties a bit more than the bigger parties so we'd probably also have a hundred thousand dollars a year lump sum payments to all parties you know to encourage a greater diversity and to sort of push back against that incumbency factor but ultimately you can you can design it however you want on that front very interesting max cura thanks for your time today that's uh, Max Rashbrook there from, oh, he's co-written a report called Money for Something, a report on political party funding at Parliament. And uh, part of the idea, uh, a suite of um, r- things talked about was this appetite for state funding costing it. It doesn't seem that much, Nicky present six to eight million bucks, does it? No, it it's, doesn't it's, seem it's that kind much. kind of a small change, really. I suppose, yeah. I mean, I would be okay with that. Uh, yes, yes to state funding. No, oh, 
Big response here. I definitely support it. Every person should have the same say in our democracy. The amount of money you shouldn't have shouldn't matter. And wouldn't it be great if parties focused on low-cost in-person campaigning like they used to rather than expensive digital advertising? Um, someone says, or Julie says, support Max and Lisa's work. It's long overdue and would be a stake in the ground for true democracy. A large response to that. It doesn't seem like a lot, does it, Chris? Uh, we're kind of six. To, I, 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 would, I would have thought it would have been in the tens of millions of dollars, but no, it doesn't no. seem. Yeah. Uh, 27 pass for the panel at RNZ, uh, panel uh, on RNZ National. Now, Fred says, I used to have a manager who had me cringing every time he'd say, now, let's have a bit of fun. Next thing, we would have to make up some cheesy song about the company values and film it. <laughs> I noticed that he never participated. He'd just sit back and enjoy the humiliation. Fun for him, maybe. Definitely not for everyone else. So Garth says no to enforce um, fun. Now, France's highest court has ruled that a man fired by a Paris-based consulting firm for allegedly failing to be fun enough at work was wrongfully dismissed. In its judgment this month, the court ruled that the man was entitled to freedom of expression and that refusing to participate in social events was a fundamental freedom under labour and human rights laws and not grounds for dismissal. It's been around the world, this one, Nicky Bazant. So um, he's a total Grinch. He doesn't want to take part in work seminars or weekend social events. Oh, look, I hate enforced fun, I must say. And I have I have been in workplaces where I've enjoyed spending time with my colleagues outside of work and socialising. That's fine. But I've also been in workplaces where it's just it's just awkward, it's uncomfortable, this whole thing where you have to sit down and have fun together, you know. It's, but, uh, there's, it's there's cringy. A, there's a drink in your hand. You're talking about workplace gossip. Oh. You're on you're on a boat to Waiheke. You have nothing in be common with these people except for the fact that you work together. That's it a lot of the time. And you don't you shouldn't be forced to socialize with them and you shouldn't be forced to drink either because part of this case was about the drinking well, culture. That's exactly in right. That yeah. company. But you've got your kombuchas these days, <laughs> don't you? Yeah, but I would like to have my kombucha at home. Oh my gosh! With people that I actually want to spend my free time with, because we're talking about free time here too, not not work time. Presumably these Back are to after the paid hours. Thing. Yeah, but but it's yeah. it's it's fun, Chris. Yeah, it can be, but not always. Um, well, I mean, the, the <laughs> drinking thing that this one of the things this guy complained about was the excessive alcoholism, yep. as yeah. he described it, and 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 lewd behaviour, which is not his thing. And actually, fair enough, if that's not his thing, well, you know, certainly, um, you know. People shouldn't be made to to go into an alcohol environment if it's not their thing, and, and they're not comfortable. Absolutely fair with enough. It. Yeah, but isn't it incumbent upon the employer, Chris, to provide a range of high quality non-alcoholic drinks, of which there are many uh, on option these days? Oh, ab- abs- absolutely. I mean, that should just be par for the course. Um, and and also, but people who just don't want to be around it can opt out. Yeah, because it's a cult. It's just, this is about the culture, not just about whether they yes. have non-alcoholic drinks. It's about yeah, that's the right. encouragement to participate in that boozy, you know, culture of drinking and and around, around the panel. If your um, if your boss said, "Look, um, we're going to be doing some group bonding. We're going to spend a night out <laughs> in the bush." Oh, what would you say, Nikki? I've done those things before. I, I'm my own boss now, so I don't have to worry about that. But. Um, I mean, it's a politics thing, isn't it? You have to weigh up 
should I do this for the politics of the situation, the workplace politics? Is it good politics for me and for the, my relationships with my workmates to do this? And the answer is probably yes. Chris, an evening in the bush with nothing but a torch uh, and your team exercise is... <laughs> You have I ain't to going a, into the bush without a sleeping bag. Yeah, no, you have to light a fire. Can um, you light? Can you oh, light a fire? Well, I tell you what. It's, um, I went on one with a client earlier this year, and there we were on the margins of the the bush at Mount Pirongia. Um and you know I love that part of the world because great people come from that part of Ngati Maniapoto. Just saying. Mm. Um, and you know, had a wonderful time. It was it was cool, and I think that was actually the group of people as much as any. It was that was the the quality component. Um, the exercises, you know, there was a lot of physical exercise stuff, which, you know, me and exercise have never been close friends. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was the people. And, and, I, and I think that's the thing. Um, you know, and if this guy is not actually down with his peeps at, at work, then, you know, actually. So be it. Yeah. See you later. Yep. Good on you. Chris McIter and Nikki Bazant with me today. You're on the panel.